0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Jessica Parr about her new book, Inventing George Whitefield, Race, Revivalism, and the Making of a Religious Icon. Uh, Jessica, hello. Hi. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, I wonder if you could tell, uh, begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay. Uh, I am a historian of the early modern British Atlantic focusing on sort of reformation to just after the American Revolution. I am interested primarily in sort of communities and individuals, uh, identities. uh, How do people perceive themselves and how are they perceived by others? And I do this sort of through the focus of religion and race. I received my Ph.D. in 2012 from the University of New Hampshire at Durham, And I also have a master's in archival science and an M.A. in history from Simmons College in
0: Boston. Oh, excellent. And and what got you interested in this intersection of race and religion in the Atlantic world and in this time period?
1: Well, I had some interest in religion and race, um, starting with my first years as a Ph.D. student I actually took a qualifying exam in African history because I was interested in broader ideas of diaspora. Uh, I came into grad school looking at, with an interest in looking at Maroon communities, especially in the Caribbean, Um, but my attention focused as I went on with my research. Um, Particularly got interested once I got into the archives and looked at all of the documents about the controversies over baptizing enslaved Christians.
0: And why is that a controversy?
1: Well, it was a controversy for a couple of reasons. The, one of the biggest reasons came down to, there's a debate about whether or not Africans had souls, whether they were capable of a true conversion um, in the Anglican context, of course, it meant that they had to be literate because to be catechized, they had to be able to read the Book of Common Prayer and the Bible and other texts. Um, and that becomes less relevant, of course, with evangelicalism in the 1730s. There was another problem. It was a matter of English law. Um, when the British, the English started to become more involved with the slave trade outside of the Royal African Company, in around sixteen nineties and onwards, there was nothing in the in English common law that specifically allowed the permanent enslavement of human beings, so no chattel slavery. And more specifically for us, there was nothing that specifically permitted the enslavement of people who were Christians. So that was a problem. So if you convert a slave, does that mean that he can no longer legally be enslaved? And there were also some greater debates about whether or not Christianity could be a source of rebellion for slaves. Um, one of the things that happens initially starting in 1680, and this is something that Whitfield and a lot of his contemporaries jump on later, was to push back against some of the planters who were worried that if their slaves converted to Christianity, it might give them ideas about rebelling against slavery. And there was an Anglican missionary, a clergyman named Morgan Godwin, who initially started in Virginia and ran afoul of authorities there and wound up being kicked down to the Caribbean. And in 1680, he wrote a series of pamphlets about advocating for the conversion of Native Americans and Africans. And one of his points was that it would make them more docile and obedient, so he inadvertently introduced what became one of the primary underlying principles of pro-slavery Christianity that evolves later.
0: Right, right, And that's something that your book certainly uh, touches upon, mm-hmm. but, but of course, before we, we get to that, we have to get to Whitfield himself. So how did this interest then get you into thinking about Whitfield?
1: Well, I knew a little bit about Whitfield, but I think the focus on Whitfield himself initially, as my dissertation and then as my book, came as I was working in the archives of Lambeth, pa- Lambeth Palace Library. Um, this would have been about 2008. I was on fellowship for part of London in London for part of that summer. And I was going through the Fulham Palace papers um looking at all the debates back and forth about the enslavement, about the, the baptism of, of enslaved Africans, and Whitfield's name kept popping up, especially after the 1730s. And particularly it was looking at the inconsistencies with Whitfield, how on the one hand he said some things that were pretty critical of slave owners, um some of his writings and, and preachings appeared to maybe raise a little bit of doubt about the morality of slavery, but on the other hand, Whitfield was a slave owner, and he was also rather a central figure in getting the getting to the legalization of holding slaves in in colonial Georgia in 1752. So it was kind of a massive contradictions in a lot of ways. So I, I was really fascinated of With the evolution of his ideas on slavery, and then later on, when his criticisms of plantation owners and other things got usurped by abolitionists who tried to invoke Whitfield in their arguments about uh, anti slavery.
0: Right, okay. So, how um, it's interesting that he's such a controversial figure yet you refer to him as an icon um, in your introduction. Could you tell us what what you mean by icon and how treating him as an icon can help us to understand his legacy better?
1: Well, one of the things that became evident as my research came on is that, you know, we have a guy whose career takes off in the late 1730s, um, dies in 1770, but yet, you know, he has cast such a broad audience for himself. He was somebody who ignored denominational lines. Um, he had what Tim Harris calls the unwalled church, which means followers that tended to ignore, you know, geography, denomination, and, you know, physical walls of a church. But yet when he when he dies in 1770, his his interest in him doesn't go away. In fact, in the 1770s onward, his, tomb becomes sort of a site of pilgrimage for a lot of followers and actually continues to be today. A lot of evangelicals will still go to the church crypt where he's entombed and and visit him, sort of pilgrimage. So I was really kind of curious, well, why is this? Why is somebody who died in 1770, who, you know, it was clearly important to early American Christians and British Christians, but why, why is he such a big influence these days? And I use the term icon and I draw on St. John Damascus, who was one of the first theologians to unpack the idea of an icon. And what I came to conclude is because he passed, he casts such a broad net. He, um, that was really kind of essential to this this long afterlife he had after he died. And by icon, I'm looking at some of the sort of key things that make him an icon. Um, the fact that he got drawn into bigger debates about religious toleration initially in the British Atlantic and later in the Americas, the fact that he gets broad drawn into broader discussions about pro and anti-slavery Christianity that bear little to no resemblance to things that Whitfield actually said. The fact that even though he died in 1770, he never identified as American, why does he get called a founding father? Why does he get identified so much with early American religious piety? so that that's sort of what I meant by icon is is that because he remains central to these big debates and that because he continued to be central to these debates even after he died that's that's what um that's what to me helped um it made him an icon
0: what and what is it then that the uh, if he's so important in these debates um why is he understood to be in different places in these debates why is he understood in so many different ways?
1: I think a lot of it has to do with his celebrity. I th- I think a lot of people would agree that he's one of the most recognizable figures of the 18th century British Atlantic. He had such a broad audience. In fact, you know, he 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 was so hugely successful that he was so well identified. It, it was sort of a common point for people to to draw some some of these discussions. Um. So it's really, I think, about his success of his missionary career.
0: Right, right. So can you tell us then, moving on to the, the first chapter of your book, could you just tell us a little bit of, about him um, and his missionary career? Sure.
1: Well, Whitfield was born in 1714 to a pair of innkeepers in Gloucester, England. Um, his father died when he was about two years old. Um, he wound up attending... Pembroke College and Oxford University um, as a servitor, which was basically a paid position. He served as a servant to his wealthier classmates. And while he was a student at Oxford, he met John and Charles Wesley, who had started the Holy Club, which was part of the early Methodist movement. And Whitfield already had some, if you if you read it, you know, if you buy the full story of his journals. He had some religious tendencies, but he wound up becoming a pretty active member of this this holy club with John and Charles Wesley serving as his mentors. Um, Initially, he preached around Oxford, particularly mission, um, particularly serving as a missionary to prisoners at the the Oxford Castle. But after John and Charles Wesley um, traveled to Georgia in 1735, and about 1735, 1736, and sent letters back, Whitfield became more ambitious. And that's when the start of his missionary career started. Um, he was a Anglican, ordained as an Anglican, although by the time he went overseas, he started to preach some things that were inconsistent, particularly with the 39 articles of the Anglican church. Um, And he conducted an about six and a half full missionary tours to the to what becomes the United States. Um he was in the middle of number seven when he died in Newburyport, Massachusetts in seventeen seventy. Um in addition to his tours, traveling over to the US, he was a prolific publisher of his journals and his sermons. Um he preached something like eighteen thousand sermons. Um, published at least 80 of them, also published his journals, including a couple of editions of them. Um, so he became this very larger-than-life character who was very skilled at tapping into this growing transatlantic print culture.
0: So you've, um, you've mentioned, you kind of alluded to, he, he ran afoul of the 39 articles. Could you tell us a little bit about the... Um you know, the conflicts he faces as a revivalist and missionary. Sure. Especially during this first tour. Sure.
1: Well, there were really two things that created problems for him right away. Um, the first was his preaching of regeneration um, or born-again Christianity. He, he's the, as the listeners were know, sort of one of the grandfathers of, of born-again Christianity. The idea that, from the book of John that people could be saved or born again through Christ. It was a type of Christianity that, that is emotional. It's about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And they, these are teachings that are not compatible with especially the more Orthodox Church of England. Um, the other thing that was a problem for him is that he was not one to be particularly deferential to authority. Um, if people criticized his teachings, he was just as likely to accuse them of bigotry. Um, if the, there's one point a bishop criticized him for preaching outside of a parish that was assigned to him, and Whitfield responded by telling the bishop that when he preached outside of his parish, he too equally offended. So, he, he was not somebody to to kowtow authority and the Church of England was very much about its hierarchy. Um, some of his preaching practices became problematic fairly quickly, in part because Whitfield was excluded from a lot of churches. He took to preaching out in fields and unconventional venues and itinerant preaching and particularly outdoor preaching was just generally not done in the Anglican Church. Um another problem is that he was extemporaneous. He didn't really follow the Book of Common Prayer, which is one of the central texts of the Anglican Church. And in fact, a lot of his converts couldn't read, didn't read the Book of Common Prayer. So that that was another problem, too. So so many things that that, that just didn't fit with Anglican practice.
0: OK, right. So. Yeah, definitely going to be controversial then, but he gets a lot of support, right? I mean, there's also people who like this.
1: Absolutely. Um, There are audiences that were, by Whitfield's report, um, up to 50 or 60,000 people. Um, There have been some modern scholars who've asked whether this is really possible, especially given the lack of uh, electronic support for speaking. And there was an audiologist at NYU who actually used Benjamin Franklin's experiments, you know, where he paced a couple of blocks away just to sort of estimate how well out was Whitfield. Did he live up to his claims that he could preach to these big audiences? And the audiologist went in with all sorts of CAD and sophisticated measuring equipment, and he determined that Whitfield had a voice of about 90 decibels, which is possible. That's what trained Broadway actors and singers tend to reach, um, and that even with the ambient noises and street noises, that probably 90 to 20,000 is more po- is more likely, but that 50,000 isn't out of the realm of
0: possibility either. Oh wow. So yeah, so very, very popular, which is maybe one reason why people were not happy.
1: Well, that certainly didn't make a lot of religious authorities in and more conventional churches, the Church of England and and the Congregationalists in New England didn't didn't really like the guy um, because he was a threat to them in part.
0: Right. So so in chapter one, you you talk about this uh, this kind of initial trip where, where Whitfield becomes more known. And then chapter two, you shift over to his second mission trip. And, and one thing I liked about this chapter was you told us uh, your readership about how the colonies really had very different re- relation uh, religious situations and how that shaped uh, Whitfield's um, reception. I, I w- wish you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Well, one of the things that I as I like to tell my students is that when you look back on the colonies, they all have their own character. They have their own po- culture. Um, especially since they, you know, settled at different times for different reasons. So colonial Georgia, very different from Pennsylvania, is very, very different from Massachusetts. And that's a big factor into why Whitfield's receipt was quite different. Um, In Georgia, which was one of the newer colonies in 1735, was set up in part as a buffer between its wealthy Carolina neighbors and also and Spanish Florida. Um, The Spanish Florida and British colonies were antagonizing each other. So having this huge stretch of land to sort of keep the Spanish further apart from from plantation southern South Carolina was was one of the goals. Um, When Whitfield went over there, he was actually welcomed initially by James Oglethorpe and some of the other board of trustees, because Georgia was in pretty rough shape. And its leadership, its colonial leadership, actually thought that having preachers come in to to provide moral succor would actually be a good thing for the colony. Um, not to mention the fact that it was founded in part by a as a charitable colony where people who were either religious refugees fleeing persecution or people who had been in debtor's prison could potentially go to to get away from their old circumstances. But the colonial George's government was weak and ineffectual and the economics were a mess. So there wasn't really a lot there to rein Whitfield in, not to mention the fact that like a number of colonies, it suffered from a lack of ordained clergy. Um, what also helped Whitfield there was that there was no specific rule that preachers had to have a license from the Church of England to preach. So there wasn't a lot in the way of legal or ecclesiastical reign in on Whitfield. Um, When Whitfield went to Massachusetts, he was actually really excited about his travels. I mean, he thought about it as the founder the um, the land of the Puritans, um, of course, Puritan culture had started to fade away by the time that Whitfield arrived in 1740 to more of a Yankee culture. But there was still that expectation that the clergy were learned. They were highly read. They were very much respected. They expected a lot of deference from their congregants. And Whitfield wasn't about that. So we had some people in Massachusetts, um, Jonathan Edwards is one, um, Benjamin Coleman is another who saw Whitfield as somebody who could potentially help renew interest in religious life, and then there were other people like Charles Ulbrick Chauncey, who was more conservative, who feared that Whitfield would destroy Christian
0: unity. Right, and that points to then again the, the so a lot of the conflicts appear to be the same. There's this fear that this this new kind of religion outside the authority is going to lead to conflict.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, Whitfield arrives in Pennsylvania and falls in with the tenants right about the time of the um, old side, new side rupture in the Presbyterian Church. So some of it is very much the timing of, of when he shows up.
0: So then, could you tell us that a lot? A large part of your book again is this idea of icon and his the way he's remembered. Could you tell us a little bit about how, in these conflicts, he presented himself and how his opponents presented him?
1: Sure. Well, Whitfield had a tendency to focus on presenting himself in sort of a, a Pauline framework, like the the Gospel of Saint Paul. He, in his journals particularly, he writes of a young man who was kind of irascible. He was involved in the theater. He played cards. He used to pinch money from his mother's purse. And the journey, it, it's a redemptive, the journal is really a redemptive narrative. It's about him going off to college, finding religion or refinding religion. So the trials that he went through early in his religious life, which included his family not being terribly supportive and some pushback from the how the master at Pembroke College. Uh, he describes having dirt thrown on him at one point. Of course, he's invoking biblical images there. But his view was to not only to present his religious methods or message to a broad audience, but also to present himself as, in a redemptive manner, the idea of himself as having been saved, having redeemed himself, um, and and to provide hope for people who were looking for something new. Um, His opponents tended to see him as an irascible upstart who didn't know his place. They criticized him for being insufficiently deferential to authority. They called him a latitudinarian. They said that he doesn't know anything about theology. There was this one um, minister who was affiliated with Har- uh, Harvard who sort of pithily compared Whitfield to a weather vane that was just spitting wildly in the wind. Um, so they, they saw him as a troublemaker and a disruptor rather than somebody who was trying to renew piety.
0: Right. So um excellent. So that gives us kind of the idea of this, this religious conflict in terms of the colonies and the, the the um the white colonists. Um in chapter three you focus more on conflict and slavery, and especially <laughs> um on the uh, slavery in Georgia. So could you tell us a little bit about what was going on with slavery in Georgia? that would lead Whitfield to actually comment on it?
1: Sure. Well, when Georgia was founded in 1735, in the first couple of years, it suffered some pretty significant economic hardship. It was sort of a rough terrain. Um, and one of the problems that the the settlers complained about was that the Board of Trustees permitted the use of slave labor so they could borrow slaves from South Carolina to help do some of the work of setting up the colony. But it was illegal to actually own slaves in colonial Georgia. Um, This was done in part because they feared that slaves would run away to Spanish Florida, and Spanish Florida, the governor was certainly instigating that. In 1738, Um, He issued an edict that said that any slave that ran away from his British or her British master and managed to make their way to Spanish Georgia would be freed. Um, This was exacerbated in 1739 with the Stono Rebellion, which a lot of people blamed. This was not terribly successful rebellion by slaves, which a lot of people blamed on the Spanish. So safety concerns were cited as one reason why couldn't, um, Georgians couldn't own slaves. The other was more related to the colony's early mission as a charity colony, the idea that these debtors should have to work to earn their keep, and that if they didn't, if they were allowed to have slaves, that it would just make them lazy. So one of the things that Whitfield did when he arrived was that he started to set up um, the Bethel House, which was a sort of an orphanage and school um, for orphans, for people who are in poverty and also for slaves. And he saw slaves partly as essential central to his mission to help get the, um, to get the Bethel house off the ground. But he also saw that because of Georgia's economic troubles, people were fleeing in broad numbers to South Carolina so he figured that having slaves who could help to set up the colonies and work the lands would help prevent some of that demographic hemorrhaging. So by the seventeen late 1740s, he became fairly heavily involved in writing to the board of trustees and actually appealing for the legalization of slave ownership in Georgia. And it wound up happening in 1752, just as Georgia transitioned from being Ruled by a board of trustees to a royal colony. Um, now, Whitfield in this time also said some things that were critical of plantation masters. So, for instance, in 1740, he published this letter in the initially in the Pennsylvania Gazette, but it gets published elsewhere too where he criticizes planters for their treatment of their slaves. And he's particularly incensed at the fact that so few of them will support the religious education of their slaves. In fact, he is harsh enough that he calls into question their, their Christianity, whether they're good Christian being good Christians. Um, As you might imagine, this rubbed a number of people the wrong way, including South Carolina's, um, Commissary Alexander Garden, who had married into a wealthy South Carolina planter family at this point um and Alexander Garden was so incensed that he wound up conducting about a ten year letter writing campaign to the Brit- the Bishop of London to try to get Whitfield discredited um is almost pathological in his in his desire to to discredit Garden. Garden also set up a Anglican school for slaves to sort of as a competition for Whitfield's very successful Bethel House, um, but it never had anywhere near the same popularity and wound up um, failing.
0: Great. So um, you also, in terms, so Whitfield Dushel is this, this kind of change in his views of slavery, though he, he has some ideas about the way uh, Christians should treat slaves. And mm-hmm. part of was, it was economic. But you also include the very arresting image of Whitfield's experience with slaves dancing around a fire. Mm-hmm. And that gives us another reason why he kind of comes to accept slavery. C- could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Well, my perception of Whitfield from everything I've read is that he's somebody who doesn't necessarily have a strong opposition to slavery per se, although he does criticize the wars waged in Africa that helped to fuel the the transatlantic slave trade, the idea that uh, European traders were helping to instigate wars and supply weapons and and money to these African kingdoms for the perpetuation of the slave trade, because that's where a number of the early slaves came from. But he he comes to look at Slaves as another potential audience. And and he embraces what I call in the book um, Christian paternalism, the idea of the slave master as the good sort of father figure to the slave who takes care of not only earthly needs but also moral needs, um, providing them with religious education, um, taking care of them. And he actually writes at one point a a tone where he encourages a poem where he encourages obedience. The, the fire that I mentioned, he's traveling with a group back to North Carolina, and he sees these slaves, he happens upon these slaves that are dancing upon, around a bonfire with no master or house, plantation house in sight. Now one of the problems with that is that they're not under the immediate control of their masters for Whitfield. So Whitfield and his P and the his traveling party are genuinely frightened that they've stumbled onto some demonstration of rebellion. Um, the other thing that is problematic about this is that in some indigenous African religions, the these sort of ceremonies are involved. It's hard to say exactly what it was. It could be Obeah, it could be something else. So Whitfield is frightened by the specter of something that is not the religion that is not Christian. And so of course, the antidote to this indigenous practice is
0: to convert the slaves. Excellent. So his, it sounds like that. I mean, for Whitfield, my understanding is basically that's what forms everything. It's all about conversion. Everything um, he can change his po- his policies on everything else, but that's the one thing that stays central.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Convert them, and and I mean, one of the things that he preached was the idea of freedom in the eyes of God. It doesn't mean that they're you know suddenly going to walk free from slavery. It meant that for Whitfield, that all souls were equally capable of achieving salvation
0: right right and so in chapter four you talk then about how um whitfield is going to go to new england which had a very different traditional i mean it's the land of the puritans they have their own understanding Mm -hmm. of how salvation works which is different from him his so i wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that context um, that he's going to find himself in new england and how that influences him and his actions there
1: Well, I think Whitfield somewhat naively expects that New England would be this big bastion of religious liberty or religious freedom. Um, He's looking back on the Puritans. And of course, that's sort of the conventional line is that the Puritans fled England to what to to New England to set up a colony that enabled them to practice their Christianity as they saw fit. Now, obviously, his idea of what Puritan culture was like is probably not entirely true in practice, but he really saw a great promise in being able to to preach to these descendants of Puritans. Um, And as I mentioned just a little bit earlier, some of the clergy in New England who saw more of a focus on individualism and also on a commercial New England, this big connection to the greater Atlantic world, thought that because Whitfield had a real talent for stirring up religious passions in people that maybe he could help bring people back to being interested in in religious life. So there was a big disconnect between expectations. I I think in in many cases, Whitfield did what they hoped he would do, just not quite the way that they hoped he would. Um, It's interesting to note that Jonathan Edwards was one of the prime figures in in deciding to bring Whitfield invite Whitfield to New England, but in part because of his own entanglements with Whitfield and his refusal to repudiate the idea that you had to be converted to be a good um preacher of of the doctrine of the gospel. Uh, he winds up losing his church.
0: Right. So, again, this is this is serious stuff that they're that they're dealing with.
1: It it, it is. Um, But at the same time, I mean, you have a report by I think it was Benjamin Coleman, uh, Whitfield preaching in a Boston church and the church being so overstuffed that one of the pews gives out from underneath them. Um, People and people winding up with bruised tailbones (laughs) because, you know, it, it just they can't hold all of those people. Um, Whitfield seemed to be a little bit perplexed at the reception that he received in some of Massachusetts. There were five clergymen who pulled him aside and criticized his consistency with the 39 Articles of the Anglican Church, um, among other things. Um, Whitfield resp- uh, mentioned at one point having a rock thrown at his carriage. And I don't think he really fully appreciated what it's what he was getting himself into.
0: Right, right, yeah. This is this is serious stuff. Yeah. Um, so what what I like also about this chapter is you you get to come back to this issue of race, and you talk about how Whitfield is affecting non-white colonists. And and I, I mean, this is um, before in the materials I've read about Whitfield. It focuses on on white Christians, right? So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit what, what's his influence beyond non-white colonials.
1: On non-white colonials, um, well, in that chapter and, and further along the book, I look at both African-American responses, and I also look a little bit about his influence among na- um, New England Native Americans. Um, you know, first, uh, one of the people that I bring into the book is, of course, Phyllis Wheatley, who is one of the most well-known early African-American writers. Um Wheatley was the slave of John and Susanna uh, Wheatley, a wealthy family from Boston who purchased Phyllis Wheatley when she was about eight years old. Um, She grew up with a family. They were very, very devout Methodists, particularly Susanna uh, Wheatley. And unusually, Wheatley had full access to her, her master's library, was educated alongside the children. And Whitfield was a big influence on her religious thoughts. In fact, so much so that she wrote one of the first most famous elegiac poems to him when he died in 1770. Um, and is really kind of responsible for pulling him into the American narrative, the American religious narrative. So that that was sort of one of the ways that he influences non-white Christians in New England. And of course, there were non white Christians who were influenced by him who traveled through New England, including John Morant, who started out in Carolinas and, and traveled up through New England, eventually preaching into Canada as well. Um, for the Native Americans, he becomes very much involved. He's aware of Eliza Wheelock, who is the founder of Dartmouth College, the, the old Indian school who had a number of pupils, including Sansom Ockham, who was a Mohawk Native American preacher. And Whitfield becomes friendly with Ockham, invites him to do a preaching tour in the 1760s in England, and kind of manages to stir up a schism between Wheelock and Ockham. He comments that, the money that Ockham is presumably raising for the school is not going to where he thinks it is. He kind of suggests that Wheelock's motives aren't entirely pure and while Whitfield isn't wrong to be fair um Wheelock is doing some pretty sketchy things right. at the same time um it the Whitfield's influence sort of having him. Whispering in Occam's ear, I think, stirs up internal fears that Occam probably already possessed.
0: Right. So yeah, it's not it's not all sunshine and candy. It's yeah. there's some problems also here. Right. So then, um, so Whitfield definitely he's this fascinating person. Um, he goes through um, obviously that an icon for many people who thinks think he's birth a threat to others. And what I think <laughs> And the way that he's um his funeral is conducted stirs up conflict, so could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, so Whitfield
1: dies halfway through his seventh tour. He's visiting the old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Um, it's a federalist style Presbyterian church that splits off from the first religious society. Um, in about 1754, um, Whitfield is influential there. The church is founded in part due to influence from some of Whitfield's visits. Um, he dies on a Saturday morning in the Parsons house. Um, some have identified him as an asthma attack. More likely it was probably a heart attack. At this point, Whitfield was fairly corpulent guy. Um, all that traveling wasn't. Necessarily, that you know takes a toll on the body. And Whitfield had, well, his family was gone at that point. He had married at one point, although it was not a very happy marriage. Um, his wife predeceased him, as had their infant son. They had a little boy who died at four months old. So the pastor Jonathan Parsons of the Old South Church and a couple of other local clergy immediately take charge of his funeral, claiming that he'd stated in his will that he wanted to be buried underneath the the church. They construct a tomb, and a couple of days with his death, they have a um, massive procession. Uh, massive, excuse me, procession through the streets of Newburyport, Massachusetts. It's a sort of a cold, rainy day, but the numbers are in the thousands, maybe four or five thousand people attended this this mass uh, two by two. They follow um, the coffin into the church um, before the procession even starts. They have a series of bell ringings. Um, the first one happens at 1 p.m. The second happens at 2 p.m., and then the third happens at, two, at 3 p.m. signaling the start of his funeral. And this is different because most colonial New England churches built before 1700 didn't have bells. They, that was considered kind of a, a Catholic thing to do. They they, they wanted the, the churches tend to be unordained. And even the ones that had bells frequently didn't know what to do with them. So the noise was the noise and the crowds were one of the things that set Whitfield's funeral apart, and had because of the emotion around it, the, to the potential to signal sedition. Um, Parsons gave a eulogy to Whitfield, um, and uh, reportedly was weeping during the during his eulogy. Um, following the funeral, Whitfield was interred in the basement crypt. And by that, I mean, he was basically, his coffin was parked into this sort of corner of the basement, the church basement, unsealed, which left it open for visitation later on. And, and, and it's something that I discuss in my book.
0: Right. So, um, and people, and you, you talk about this, especially as you go into chapter six, why do people continue to visit Woodfield's tomb after his death?
1: A couple of reasons. Some of them are evangelicals who see him as this really important figure. So when Whitfield dies, his followers have sort of an important line that they have to walk. On the one hand, they, they're sort of aware that they don't want to be presumptuous, you know, be, you know. on the other hand, of, of salvation. On the other hand, if, you know, in, in their worldview, if Anybody should be capable of salvation. It should be Whitfield. So Whitfield represents sort of a hope for them for their afterlife. So you have chains of evangelicals who visit his his tomb, um, even handling his remains, sometimes taking souvenirs um, as as talismans of sort. Um, they they they're, they try to connect with him to to hope that. In the hopes that some of this hope would rub off onto them, this hope and this piety, um, there are talismans that are taken to um, before he switched sides. Benedict Arnold and a regiment of colonial Continental soldiers go into the tomb. They view the they view the corpse. This is by now five years after he's about four and a half, five years after he's dead, and they take bits of clothing off the corpse. And keep them as souvenirs. Um, there is another instance in around seven, around 1838, where a English follower actually steals Whitfield's arm bone from out of his coffin and sends it to a friend in in England who is an admirer of Whitfield's. And eventually, the recipient decides that, well, this is kind of sacrilegious to have. One of Whitfield's bones. So he mails it. He sends it back to uh, Newburyport and the bone is paraded in another elaborate ceremony through the streets of North Carolina or not North Carolina through the streets of Newburyport and is returned to its rightful place in his coffin. And things like this continue to happen until the city of Newburyport orders Whitfield's um, tomb sealed in 1932 for sanitary
0: reasons. So, and this—I'm uh, you know, a specialist in Catholicism, and fascinates me because this is something Protestants always criticize Catholics for doing. Yeah, and here Protestants are doing it. Did any one of the? again, yeah. <laughs> what's going on here?
1: I don't think this was conscious. To be honest, I think this was just about. To them, it was about reverence. Um, I don't think that there was any consciousness, or at least I found no, I'm willing to be proven wrong. I, I never found any evidence of them consciously enacting reliquary or any of the other um, practices that we tend to associate with the Catholic Church.
0: Were there any Protestants who said, you know, wait a second, we shouldn't be doing this. Uh, this is what the Reformation was about.
1: Not that I saw. Huh. Uh, I mean, other than, you know, maybe, you know, some irreverent comments that uh, there was a travel writer from London who went to Newburyport um, who recorded coming across an old man and, you know, encouraged him. Hey, you know, Whitfield is buried here and you can see him if you want. You know, you can sort of imagine this, this old man kind of irreverent kind of busting out, but it, it's not clear that there are any religious or spiritual motives. And I think the travel writer ultimately did go visit Whitefield's tomb. So it's a little bit of a travel destination too, but I, I never found any, I never found any evidence um, before sort of more modern discussions of, of, of people saying, wait a minute
0: here. Right. Well maybe it was it's interesting because yeah, this is the one thing that kind of this is a man of controversy and this controversy in this sense is just it is just goes off the radar. It is, and
1: especially since Whitfield was deeply anti Catholic. Right, yeah.
0: Kind of, oh my. Well yeah. now that controversy may have went off the radar, but even though Whitfield is dead, he still ends up being in posthumous controversies.
1: Yes he does. <laughs> Quite a bit.
0: Right, so what what is happening with those?
1: Well, the one of the controversies uh had to do with early American religious identity. Um Whitfield is you know, he's sometimes identified as a founding father which has some problems historically. Right, yeah, um you know, the not the least of which he died in 1770, mm-hmm. he never identified as an American Um, The term founding father was actually not coined until the 20th century. So the question is, you know, it's obvious that Whitfield is is important for early American religious identity, especially American, especially evangelicals. And, you know, we don't, don't want to erase that history at the same time. You know, if he's not a founding father, well, what is he? And, you know how how do we explain his influence? how do we explain his role in theo what i call theopoliti revolutionary theopolitics that's that's different but allows for for what role he might have played and what I found is that because again because he's such this this sort of broad figure that had his had um, such a big audience, he becomes invoked. In among the more religious Americans as a saver or as a protector, I mean, there were Americans, of course, who preached uh, revolutionary sermons. Uh, I mentioned Nathaniel Walker. Um, There's Jonathan Mayhew, who combined religious and religion in American revolutionary politics, including, you know, Jonathan Mayhew's reinterpretations of Romans 13, um, questions of authority. And Whitfield seems to get pulled into this. Um, One of the things that I discovered in the course of my research was this pamphlet. um, This magazine was written in 1781, shortly after the burning of New London, Connecticut, that had the ghost of Whitfield appearing above a regiment of British troops led by the turncoat Benjamin um, Benedict Anderson. And Whitfield apparently scared this regiment into burning their British finery. Now, given both Whitfield's critiques in life of religious access- excesses and the politics of consumption around the American Revolution, that's very productive. Um, you had people, because of refinement, who had become Quite fond of their, their British damasks and their other British goods that were not manufactured here in the colonies, what, in what becomes the United States. And it becomes a political statement to, to buy or not buy and to wear or not wear these, these British fashions. To, so in this way, they're inserting Whitfield, a ghostly Whitfield, into this, this conversation about consumption and, um, the marketplace
0: of revolution. Right, right. This is fascinating. What I thought was, um, and this is how you, you end your book, looking um, in South Carolina, which is where I'm at. Yep. So I, I like that. <laughs> um, with Reverend William Larkin's address at the First Presbyterian Church in Columbia. Right. How does this show then his, um, Whitfield's continued importance?
1: Well, I think he's somebody that has remained influential to a lot of even 20th and 21st century preachers. Um, Larkin is one. Um, uh, Larkin invokes Whitfield in the sermon. Um, uh, Billy Graham is somebody who has also invoked Whitfield. In fact, the one of the things that I'll note is, of course, not not to be disrespectful to Billy Graham, but he's obviously he's in his what, late 90s now, I think.
0: And, I think. That's right.
1: And there's not really a good successor for sort of the larger figurehead of. For American evangelicals, is there? Right. I mean, um, Franklin Graham hasn't really met that standard. Certainly, Jerry Falwell Jr. hasn't. You have guys like Joel Austin, who is certainly popular, but not really a a Graham esque or a Whitfield. So, you know, it becomes a. I think there's still an aspiration for a number of the these guys to to follow in his footsteps.
0: Right. Oh, excellent. Right. Yeah. He's still, there's that sense that, like you said, fall supposed his footsteps, some big shoes to fill there. Yeah. Uh,
1: because, what? I mean, despite having, you know, despite sort of the the problems, you know, that I, I talk about with identifying Whitfield with the American Revolution, but he, he still nonetheless remains a, a central figure of of um, American religious identity, even even
0: to this day. Right, right. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, and we want to thank you for that. I do want to trouble you for just a couple more minutes and ask you, what are you working on now?
1: Sure. I have a couple of projects that I have um, sort of in the burner now. Um, I have one book project that explores the evolution of African-American theopolitics from before and after the american revolution so from about 1760 into maybe 1820 or 1830 or so and i'm looking at the transition from some of the early criticisms of slavery via jupiter hammond and phyllis wheatley that they're sort of subtle to the more fiery and militant uh theological or theopolitical writings of the guy like you know like um David Walker, who is blamed for, in, in you know, instigating Ned uh, Nat Turner's rebellion. Um, so that's one book that I'm working on. Um, and I started some research last summer on that. And then for my other project, it's, it's probably a book, too, but it's also a digital humanities project. I'm looking at the evolution of religious social networks in New England from Puritan to Yankee, and then the influence of evangelicalism in the 1730s, late 1730s, 1740. And that project will probably go up to the American Revolutionary War, maybe just a tad after. Um, I've started doing some research and writing on articles, but um, I'm also exploring some of the digital history angles using, using some of the digital tools like Gaffey to just see what I can make of, of the print networks.
0: Oh, excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing how those turn out. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you again so much, and you have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been Franklin Roush of Lander University of the Christian Studies channel, The New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll come and listen again soon.